Welcome to another episode of the Bandwagon Podcast. And today it was, I've said it many times before, when I first started doing uh, podcasting, there was a number of people I had on my hit list. And uh, Mark Stripple was towards the top of that. Um, And just the sheer experience and wealth of knowledge uh, that hopefully Mark will, will, will share with us today. Um, is massive. So, you know, roles from being in as a DJ, an editor, um, part of Punjabi Hit Squad, uh, ex-head of uh, BBC One Extra, Asian Network, and just his journey all the way to having his own gin company is is mad. So um, without further ado, welcome, Mark, to the Bandwagon podcast. Hey, it's a privilege to be here. We, we got here. It's taken a long time. Yes. A long time. A lot of stalking in some ways, uh, you know, it, it, some would say, uh, following you at a uh, podcast conferencing and uh, just bumping into you there and then just hanging around like a bad smell until you... Uh, uh, no, um, it's, been good. it's been good. We got we got just before Christmas as well. So Yes. Yeah. Well, there you go, everyone. It's your it's, it's a Christmas present. So whenever you do hear this in the future, you'll you'll always remember it with uh, with uh, home alone feelings. Let's just put it that way. Mark, your career is so unique. Uh, when I was like uh, um, looking you up and and your history, and I the first time I bumped into your name was there's this guy in Punjabi Hit Squad who was non-Indian, and I was like, how what, what how does this work? <laughs> what right. how does the maths work from this? Because coming from Hansworth, Birmingham, you know the Pongra scene from this one. Yeah, you were just such a curveball. And then I just realized why you were so important with it. So just as a first question, how was your journey um getting yourself involved from your background into uh, Punjabi music? Yeah, I mean it's um it's something I've been asked a lot over the years. Um and it still comes up, different generations, right? Mm-hmm. Might discover my role in something of think, how did that happen? Because actually, as you, as you know, if you look across the scene right now, look at Punjabi music right now, it's not particularly diverse, right? I mean, in terms of, you know, it's, it's hardcore Punjabi and then it's broader South Asian involvement, but there's still, you know, there's still something around the lack of engagement from the white population in this country. People might know a Bhangra track, they might know Sidhu, but they still don't really engage. And for me, it was... Um, yeah, it was like societal, really. It was like my background. So I grew up in I grew up in Hounslow, uh, Hounslow West. Hounslow, Hounslow's changed over the years, but at that time, my school, imagine from two, three years old, my school was probably 50%, 60% Asian. Um, and I wasn't the only white kid who grew up in that school, but I stayed with that, probably that connection throughout the years. So from, I mean, look, you know, going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, to where we are now, I've always maintained and grown that connection. And I suppose from school days, growing up in a place like Hounslow, you're you're surrounded. A, if you're white, you're connecting with culture in some way. But I think I I was always intrigued, and I think that's my mindset. And I I question why I then leaned in much more heavily because because a lot of my a lot of uh, schoolmates who are I was at school with who aren't Asian, they probably don't live in, they probably don't live in the ends anymore. They don't live in in West <laughs> London. A lot of people move out, you know, move out of the area you grew up in. And actually, a lot of my, a lot of my Asian mates 
who I went to school with don't live in Hounslow anymore. You know, people have moved and you have that movement. But I stayed with it and I I discovered, I knew about Bhangra, uh, I knew about pre-Sunrise Radio, there were pirate radio stations, Sino Radio. This is before there was a BBC Asian Network or any other radio station. And I knew about bands that were coming up, like Hira, like Alap, like Hole Hole, like Golden Star, and this Pajungi. And this is around 86, 87. So at the time, I'm in my, early, you know, barely in my teens. And people are swap, swapping tapes around school. And I was into hip hop as well. So I sort of viewed the Bhangra scene a little bit like the hip hop scene. Actually, it was an emerging, evolving subculture and subgenre. Which things mad when you talk about hip hop in that sense, but it was at the time. Same time. <laughs> yeah. And electronic music was uh, and all, all those things. And we were we were swapping tapes, TDK audio cassettes of the latest music. So it might be, it might be even bands that aren't particularly well known in this day. Like, you know, Pawana Sangeet of Coventry, Leamington Spa, Mellow Group of Here, or you know, those bands, right? And um, and that's what we would do. And it grew from there. And then it got to the stage about 1989 where I could actually go to gigs. Um, and I was part of a sound system back then, me and a friend of mine called Prince, uh, Gurmuk, and um, Gurmuk and me, and me used to work together. So we would we would share vinyls, share records. Uh, we had all the vinyls that were out there because back then you didn't have the world of audio files, right? And uh, everything else, Ableton, everything else, you you had to have your vinyls. So you were going to Southall and you were going record shopping and you got IRH or Metro Music or all of those places and you might go to the Midlands you might go Birmingham and Roma and those places on Friends Electric in, in Leicester Soho Road you would go and you would get you would get vinyls from Coventry from all those places and we were known as as DJs in Hounslow so we were we we're a sound system that came up Hounslow's right next to Southall there's areas like Cranford Heston and it's got its own ecosystem it's got its own ecosystem um of of a music subculture and uh yeah, and it just, you know, people people connected between Southall and different areas. And Southall was obviously a much bigger hub. I think Holly Holly came out of, um, Manjeet Gondal came out of Hounslow, but there wasn't a lot of music being produced in the area. But in Southall, there was. And I stayed with it. My first gig um, was at the Hippodrome, a daytimer in Leicester Square. And I think it was, I think it was Hira actually on stage at that time and another band. And then I'd missed some albums by that time. So I probably got onto Hero for, Hero, for example, around the Diamonds time. But then you go back and you discover Jaguar Lamella and you discover yeah, yeah, yeah. classic, classic albums. And Premi played at that gig, I think, and elsewhere. And from there, I stayed with it. So you're talking mid-80s, and I haven't really, I've been probably consistently involved. And just to, just to fast forward very quickly, um, one sound system grew into another. A crew called Maximum Energy. Uh, I was involved in forming. We we all worked at the airport together. If you if you live in West London, airport, you want a job, you work you work at the airport. And uh, <laughs> our job was W H Smith in in Terminal Two, and it was like a a confluence of people from different different areas coming together. So suddenly, me, uh, one guy from Southall, and Atapal is probably the most amazing Punjabi DJ I've, I've seen. Tech technically in terms of scratching vocals in terms of you know his understanding of of the, uh, the technical craft uh and he learned that from scratch on belt drive turntables back then is what you had so yeah i stayed with it and um it grew from there 
but I suppose the essence of it was me being me being really interested and intrigued by what was happening around me and allied with a always I think it's one thing I've had as a thread throughout my career it's been how do I champion uh, an underrepresented music form that I think uh, needs more attention and needs more focus you know kind of you know, just, just kind of deconstructing what you just said there in terms of like from a strategy, from a leader point of view, and that keyword that you said, which was around intriguement. Because we can be intrigued on a lot of things, you know, some, uh, you know, you're intrigued by technology or anything like that. But to actually fully lean into it, into a culture, is a real rare skill and to go into. It. And, and the way that, you know, that you, the way you've responded from there, You've always got, you know, I, I don't know whether I'm putting words in that the credibility just flows out of it in terms of like, you know, your knowledge and, and your strategy within it. But the, the the thing for me was how you you've brought strategy throughout your career and then kind of you you've lent into looking at cultural blends, looking mm -hmm. at those um those those nuances and seeing what what worked for you because you're Every everything that you said, you've been innovative, like from swapping tapes, then to going to get part of a sound system, then being on a gig, and then going on to here. You can see a progression leveling up in that. What does that come down to then for you? I think it's um, I think the perfect alchemy if you're going to build something, if you're creative, it is, mm. and you get people who are pure creatives, right? Who um, are just purely for the art. And I was always about the art. I still am about the art. I do so many things that aren't aren't commercial right and aren't, aren't actually really strategic they're just just for making good music just for making something that might be known by just a handful of people but i think if your real progression comes from the alchemy of um creativity and strategy really and discipline strategy sounds like a really big word but it's it's the thought process about how you progress something how you take that podcast from there to there I think at the heart of it is there's got to be passion. There's got to be uh, there's got to be a love for culture, you know, without a doubt. Whether that's whether that's rap, whether that's grime, whether that's bhangra, whether it's Punjabi folk, whether it's uh, electronic Asian music, whether it's the subculture overall, that has to be there to to progress something. Otherwise, it won't. It won't be credible. It won't be authentic. And that love has to be has to be there. But I think it's for me, it was always that it was always that combination. It was like, right, okay, we've got a sound system in Hounslow. How do we grow this? So we've got a profile in Ilford in East London. Because it wasn't it wasn't about the country back then. It was about how do you build your rep? How do you grow from this place in Hounslow West and Hounslow, Hounslow Heath to being known in Southall, being on the map amongst the DJ scene and club scene there and playing at Hammersmith Palais that was like the the Holy Grail. And then then setting up your own clubs. And then maybe setting up your own record label, then maybe producing music, then maybe doing gigs in Nottingham, in Manchester. Definitely not thinking about Toronto at that point. Definitely not thinking about uh, going to India. Definitely not thinking about being at the BBC because, you know, I was still, irrespective of my background, I was a working class kid and I grew up on a council estate. And aspiration is something that... Um, yeah, you have to dig into, really. You've got a, it's not funded, that aspiration, and you need to find ways of getting ahead and you've got to hustle in a in a legitimate way to, uh, to fund your aspirations and ambitions. And that's one thing we did. 
So we would put our own, our own gigs. If somebody wasn't booking us for, for a, this is probably the maximum energy, energy days, that we had to find a way to position ourselves in the right way at these events. Um, and we would put on, put on our own ones, uh, put on our own, our own shows at uh, Palais or elsewhere uh with friends so you know a good friend of mine for example pro we probably had some every dj has this right there's a number of certain gigs that just make you very early on and they just progress your career and there was a guy uh, a really good friend of mine onka uh onka gill sadly passed um 15 plus years ago he used to own a carpet shop in hounslow east kingsley carpets also on Asbridge road <laughs> and um he was at school with me and we we were always into cypress hill but also a little bit I, I was actually more into bungaroo than he was but he funded a show at a, a palais and um a lot of shows in those days were funded by people who had just had just had a business right yeah 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 onka was uh, onka was like that and um i got maximum energy i designed the flyer as well the poster so some of this poster was all all over london and i made sure our logo was fat on that poster you had sahotas you had upness and geet you had maximum energy were like up there and um yeah. The positioning of politics on a flyer, for those is, people who don't know, is is it's as important as how people um, value likes and follows and stuff. Now, if you're a if you're an artist and you've got a little picture, or you're just like a that, that's like the the equivalent of swearing at someone's parents, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, it still is, right? It still is. <laughs> it's uh, but we made sure we got out there, and then we started the first weekly weekly. I, I was say underground Asian club night at a place called the WAG, uh, Bombay Jungle in central London on Wardour Street. There was groundbreaking at the time because we were, we loved the bungara scene, um, but actually most of the music was from um, maybe a generation before us. And actually we were growing up with Wu-Tang Clan and Nas and drum and bass coming through. And we wanted to mix those beats with uh, with a Premi track or with, uh, yeah, you know, later down the line, Bindrakia and others. And we wanted our space where we could do that. And we found this club. Um, it was me, a friend of mine uh, called Mitz from, a, from a, a seat rap crew called Hustlers Convention. Big up Mitz. And a guy called Matt from another sound system. And three of us came together to form uh, Bombay Jungle that was the that ran every Tuesday. And it's funny because it, the three of us were only together for one year. Me and Mitz then split to form... Uh, to a place called Limelight, just down the road. And Tuesday nights at the Limelight was legendary. I mean, it was a much bigger club. Um, but Bombay Jungle still lives on today. And it, in fact, it was 30 years uh, anniversary. Wow. A few months ago. Amazing. It was, um, yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah, Ritsu was there as well. She was she was DJing um, an early incarnation of Punjabi Hit Squad um, with Asian DJ culture. So D from Punjabi Hit Squad was part of a crew before uh, Rav joined ADC later and Raj Kalyan, rest in peace. Um we we all DJed alongside each other. Uh, I knew ADC from from Southall and um back then brought yeah I was booking the DJs for the uh, for the bungra floor. So I was I was on the bungra floor, Mitz was in the hip hop floor, hip hop dance or R and B. And these were times where you um in fact it felt quite unique at the time to have a, a floor that was bungra and then a floor that was Hip hop and R and B and dancehall. So you would have like UK Apache come in and perform downstairs uh, anthems. You would have Rampage and well-known DJs coming in as, as well, uh, as well as the um, as well as the. But we celebrated DJ culture, um, 
And one thing we did, we made a conscious decision back then. We did do some weddings, but not to be a wedding. Yeah. Sounds, and that and that was just something that we. It wasn't the most commercially sensible decision to make, right? Because even back then, you could make decent money as a DJ uh, in the Bangladesh scene doing weddings. Um, but we said we're going to be about clubs. We're going to be about club culture. We're going to be about innovation. Innovation uh, in the sense of, um, yeah, fusing fusing kind of Punjabi music with other music forms, but in a way that still feels true to the to the essence of, of, of folk and what folk is about. Um, it's just blowing my mind, honestly. I, there's so much to unpack. I just don't feel like I'm going to do it any justice, man. So I'm going to try and make the the best part of what we're going to say. You you, you talked about being in the late 80s and early 90s. So some of the artists that you were coming across there were just starting out or hitting the, or coming up to the peak or in their peak. Obviously, in terms of languages and stuff like that, you're, as you're listening, your languages and your understanding of music will, will, will comes more and more clear and the, the, the passion for it. Who were those some early people that you saw in your career and you just knew oh my god i'm i'm witnessing history as well at the same time yeah it's um i guess i've been privileged to be to be for an age where there's been so many different musical milestones in the asian scene but also the broader music scene right in terms of black music uk music uh, uk rap music and everything else and uh i've always had those two those two lanes to what i've been about on the asian side I've seen, you know, I can remember flying for my first event. And back then, you don't think about it, but I'm at a Miller in Streatham in South London and Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan's on stage performing. And I'm I'm literally there promoting. This is about 1992, uh, five years before he passed. Um, so that was a musical. I wish I wasn't even handing out flyers at that event, just standing there watching what's going on on stage. I remember... Um, there's a legendary promoter called Kushti who used to be around. He's still a character on the scene. It's a big up Kushti. And uh, and back then, when you were flying for an event, even in London, you would go up to Bradford and you would be outside a club giving out flyers. And we jumped in the back of a van. He had a, he had a gig to promote. Travelled in the back of a van, no health and safety, all the way up to Maestro's in Bradford. And DJ Shake, um, big up Shake, um, had Jazzy B on stage. Back then, I don't know if it was Jazzy's first performance, but it's one that people talk about. It was yeah. one of his first, if it wasn't his 90, first. 92, 93 was the first time when he was... Not, he, yeah. I, I mean, he did a, I think he did a... Um, he did a gig in 92 before anything had come out. Yep. Um, as a kind, not not like a test run, but just was, was on, and then 93 onwards was... Yeah. It was that time, and it, you know he was different to every, anything else that was out there. And if you, if you grew up in... BC, Surrey, or elsewhere, you knew about Jazzy, right? Jazzy Baines was already a known entity out in Canada. But the connections weren't there in the same way back then between now we take it for granted. You talk to people in Canada all the time. You talk to people in, you know, Bombay, you know, Mumbai and, and Delhi and elsewhere. That wasn't there in the same way, that connectivity. So it took time for, for tapes to make it over from uh, you know, from from uh North America and elsewhere. And he just killed it because he came in and I loved the old school Bhangra bands, don't get me wrong. But he came in with a rawness that felt quite hip hop back then in a way that Raf Supera is is doing now, I would say. And that felt fresh. You know, back then, folk and funky, 
Nandula Patola, you know, Cookie and Jora, those, those tracks were really cut through in a very, very different way. And probably paved the way for like um down the line, like a AS Kung kind of re, you know, to to be you know relived again, you know, a second wind for him to come back. And people were suddenly really into into folk in a much bigger way. Because for a while it became much more synthesizers and it became much more um Western production. Um, but suddenly he took it back. You know, people like Kuljit Bumra had always had a really percussive sound to what they had. And um I was always always into his sound, but I think he brought that back, that folk, that rawness, that appreciation as well of, of raw Punjabi music. Um and listening back to an old school Surinder Shinda album or Dilshed Akhtar or, or someone else. Um and then I think Punjabi MC. You know, there's been so many contemporaries. P is probably more my, he's my generation, really. And he, I caught up with P very early on, on his, I think it was Roots, his first one, not Roots. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Oh, no. Uh, no, before. 100% Root. Oh, oh, wait. Way, way back before that. And there was a, there was an early. Magic. Uh, not even Magic Desi, no. Uh, there was something else. I'm, I'm forgetting it is you. Hang on, let me just put a. Put it up, and everyone's going to be slagging me off right now. Hang on. But um, yeah, people kill me for it. But you know, I was working on a magazine at the time, went up on the beat oh. about 1990-1991, and um, he was interviewed for that. So got to know him from there, and then we were we were in contact, and he he vibed with what we were doing in London in the clubs with DJs, and I remember him coming down. Another sellout. No, before it was. It's Think of the Another sellout. It was an EP. It was very. It may not even be listed. Okay. Um, but I remember like Grassroots having that on a TDK cassette. And we were playing tracks from that, and yeah, it just it just went from there. But he was clearly someone who, from day one, we still do. And back then, we we always related to what he was doing. Is connected. it then? Is it because like obviously a, a lot of the parts and how you naturally connected was like a lot of it was like kind of London based from there. I've always got a favor of in, it, flavor in terms of like Midlands really kind of influenced that bit. But you know, a lot of the people that you just mentioned, they started forming their base, their foundation around the Midlands. Did you? there's two questions that I was going to get asked on one was around how did you navigate through the balance between the two movements that were happening in London and Midlands in terms of a blend and the other one is like you just uh, slightly touched on it was your mainstream connection and um uh with with let's say uh, black music or white mainstream music how did you get that balance between the folk and that that part of it because it it it, it can be a real str struggle eclectically you can have listened to everything but how did you do that um i think the london midlands thing people used to talk about it a lot right it used to be People still do when you talk about you know the roots of Bunga and everything else. It's just it really doesn't does it really doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. Mm. Right? There were different emergent. This is my reading. This is you know yeah no, are, no it's good it's good it's good. There are many different tales of history versions of history right and um, <laughs> there are yeah you know so everyone you know there's a number of bands that were the first and but there were you know there were different music forms that were coming up in different areas at different times and as DJs. Actually, I don't think that was really an issue. I mean, every area had its own had its own crews who were who were well known. Mm. Um, you know, fast forward ten years after that with Punjabi Hit Squad, and that was an era of RDB repping up Leeds, Tiger Style, Glasgow, and we wanted to set something up as Punjabi Hit Squad. But we'll come we'll come to that. Mm. 
Uh, but in London at that time, in the nineties, it was DJ culture was really coming through in a big in a big way, and people like Midland and, it was ban and bands were the main thing in, in bands were the main thing, and that, there was a little crunch point around that time. I think it was yeah. Caesar, our DJs taken away from live music. I think there was an imbalance for a period of time, and I think it did. And then then we went into the PA era as well, rather than live bands. But in terms of navigating that. I think it was always a respect. You know, I, I always revered and looked back to, to DJs from the Midlands, for example, like, you know, DJ Ace, Wolverhampton, or Mick Sinclair way back, and other people. And um, Calibre, you know, in London, I grew up. Yeah. Calibre Roadshow, Executive, Bad Company, were the main DJs for me, and who, Avatar from Calibre, Amit and Sanj. Um, they were the local heroes for us, actually. And growing up in West, in West London, they were the ones who we really looked up to. And they were the ones we kind of wanted to be, in a way, we wanted to be on the map and have our own profile. As Maximum Energy, we definitely did. And um, when we played alongside them, we upped our game. We raised our game all the time. But we made every opportunity we could to get to get onto events in those places. So we would play Wolverhampton. We would play Coventry. We would play Leicester um and Birmingham and because actually I think in the scene at the time we were we were probably a bit more folk actually even as DJs than many other DJs um so Atapar for example I mean and, and Gorby in the scene really well known for doing like a desi half an hour so we would go back into Gideon Dirani we would we would go back into uh Buddy Kolke and uh you know Jorna Moore and, and like you know, switch, switch, you know, cutting between those tracks for about half an hour. And this is back in the 90s, and that was legendary. You know, people didn't do that in the same way all the time. But we um, we tried to do things differently. And everyone had their own lane, and lots of road shows, Sting and others in in West London, we looked, to, we looked up to in terms of what they were doing um, and, their, you know, the contribution. But everyone's contribution was different, and we wanted our own lane. Uh, in terms of in terms of how we married that with the mainstream, I don't think we did at the time because this was all this was outside the mainstream. You know, these these clubs, Bombay Jungle got written about a little bit in the mainstream press. Um, like DJ Magazine and things like that would would talk about it as a as something's happening around Asian music in a way that maybe like the live music bungalow scene didn't didn't get. Um, but then we were in central London. We were in a credible club. We were, we had DJ Ritsu, for example, who was really well known at the time and, and cutting through. But we, um, no, we, we were still outside the mainstream. It probably wasn't until I would say that 2002, 2003, One Extra, Def Jam, Punjabi Hit Squad, Jay Sean, that whole time, Raghav, Rishi, suddenly Rishi, that suddenly started to move. Uh, and bubble from there so i operated probably outside that mainstream for a long period of time i wasn't really engaged i was engaging on a musical level but i wasn't i wasn't in one in the one extra world you know i was out i was going to shows i was catching up with djs um but i was on punjab radio you know what i mean i punjab radio is not mainstream you know <laughs> not at that time definitely <laughs> community you know desi radio punjab radio bba radio Westside radio that's that's where i cut my teeth you know, so I would be late night, um, and that wasn't that wasn't paid. You know, what I mean, you're not doing that for 
commercial reasons you're doing it because I don't, I don't think they still get paid <laughs> you want to build you know you're doing your you're giving your contribution right to to the music and the scene and the and the culture so yeah you know kind of springfield road south hall you'd be there 12 o'clock 1 a.m in the morning uh no one else is in the building and you would be you know and you'll get <laughs> you don't know if you're gonna play a song or get mugged <laughs> yeah and, you know Glamour isn't always there, you know, it's fair to say. Uh, but I loved it. You know, every station had its own. Those stations for me were really important because that actually that was my radio experience before getting onto the BBC. So the time I took in those spaces. Uh, I'm gonna for- I'm gonna answer I'm gonna ask a question which I asked um um Rav from Punjabi uh, Punjabi Hit Squad. And I'm gonna ask it now rather than later on while we get before we get to the BBC bit. You've just said your core learning and your core passion was from those small, um, smaller radio stations and where you were learning, you know, giving your free time and it's your it's passion projects from there. And look at the career that you went without not having that foundation to where you got to. At the moment, we've seen in the last 18 months, we've seen the Jeet Dasanj, Gurren Ojala, AP, um, I'm, I'm missing some of some of the ones, some of the biggest, some of the biggest ass man who've come over, and they've gone down this kind of no media policy where they they haven't given a an a, an interview either to promote their their tour that's coming up, or an in depth or a long form interview of their tour coming up, or just in general. If these artists continue to do that, and there's this distrust between the media and the media with the artists. I I believe, and I'm, I'm going to put this bit that you're going to kill that next generation of content creators, influencers, podcasters who who are passionate about it, and it it's almost gonna it's it's just going to wipe out, and it's going to take the industry back um, to a place where I don't think we we're going to be. And it's a real concern for me if if people are not getting access to speak to these people for their thoughts. Uh, n- n- not and, and news articles and journalists out there, you know, if the BBC can't pin these guys down, which is true, they haven't over the last 18 months to get large in-depth interviews um, I- I- I'm very worried. Do you share that thought or do you think something different from looking at your, from your, from your ex-experience? Um, I mean, I'm not close to the issue, I would say, because yeah. I, I sort of, le- you know, I lean in, but I'm, I'm not yeah. In maybe, yeah. So I'm probably not tuned into the to the well, you know, exactly what's happening with the Punjabi music scene right now in terms of that's that side of yeah. things. Musically, yes, but behind the scenes, I, I left the beat two years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I think in the ecosystem, these things go through trends, right? I can remember definitely artists coming over who who wouldn't want to be interviewed. You know, that would happen sometimes, or it's difficult to lock someone in, and you would need to. Even for the BBC, sometimes there's no guarantee you're going to get an interview. But if you are looking to, uh, yeah, and let me just caveat that by saying in this day and age, yeah, there's more platforms. There's more ways to reach your audience and grow your audience than being on radio. The role of radio has changed. But audio audio as a as an ecosystem is, is has never been richer, right? With podcasting, with different platforms. And if you think of... Um, if you think of the hip hop scene, for example, like a Drinks Champs or you know those types of platforms that are really important for the for the for the culture and the propagation of culture and the, and discourse and going back, 
then the perfect ecosystem around Punjabi music and Punjabi artists and Asian artists to grow and thrive and um, show themselves as well as a, as a force is is a world in which there are there are interviews. You know, there is content mm. where there's challenge, create creative challenge from people where people are asking questions of people. That's the perfect. That's the perfect ecosystem to be in. I understand from a management point of view and an artist's point of view how you want to protect yourself. There's certain platforms you may not want to go on, and I think that's always been the case. You know, not everyone's going to want to go on every, be interviewed by every single person or every single platform. But if there's a, I mean, I can't see that lasting because there has to be some some reveal. There has to be some moment. There has to be some challenge. People... Not, not everyone's going to get a, a Netflix documentary. Not everyone's going to get, you know, because they've seen the top artists getting these access to the, you know, AP's got this and uh, uh, being on Forbes, Audelage doing all these big brand stuff. A lot of the mainstream um, labels now are knowing the value of the brown pound. It's going back to that phase of where Timberland and everybody used to kind of utilize it. And maybe it's the 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 pride side of me where you're like look you're repping a community from here if you're going to give an interview you got to know what you're saying you got to be proper when you do open your mouth you got to be you got to be good and because they don't have that experience of navigating the questions or how they do that how to talk about selling a product or what they're doing or, or that community i think i'm worried i'm just i'm whether i'm hypersensitive to it i'm, I'm just saying i'm just i get it, I, I, get it. I, I think you know the necessary skills and maybe Maybe in this day and age where you insulate yourself and protect yourself from being on platforms because you're holding out for a particular documentary at some point, potentially, or just protecting yourself and you just don't want to put yourself in that position, then you know that's a, someone's going to come through at some point you know, and just and just be speak directly to you and speak directly to the BBC and give the people what they want and have have that interview and be effortless and skillful in how they tell their story, you know, because at the heart of it is storytelling, right? You know, there's, yes, there's the art, yes, there's performance, yes, there's technique, yes, there's charisma, yes, it's how you engage with audiences and how you build your brand. And everyone, all those artists you mentioned are making really, and have made really clever moves. You look at, you know, path, look at the pathway from Diljit's yeah. career, where he was early days, you know, to all the way to now. He's making very precise movements at different times and, um, and making the right moves. But I think, you know, engagement and has engaged at some, you know, sections of, of his career without a doubt. And is is great at doing so. But I think a yeah, if, if what you're saying is there's a there's a generation, potentially a generation of artists who don't feel as open to talking, yeah. I mean, I think I think that will change. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I really hope so, and I and and I and I think it was you know I've I've been quite um quite vocal on this bit in terms of doing that to kind of safeguard legacies, the stories and stuff out there um to do that, and like people like Siddu always used to be going Instagram live and used to get straight content straight from him, and there's no one bigger than him, right? Then you had like even Gary Sandu, the way he used to be doing it, do it. Jazzy has never been scared to talk about his views and opinions on loads of stuff. And you get that, you get more than a connection of just music. You're getting to know about people as well at the same time. Those those three examples are prime examples, right? You know, Jazzy. Jazzy's never wavered over the years. You know, I mean, Jazzy's always been to the to the core, 
you know, he is, you know, he, the way he presents himself, you know, the way he's the way he's open and what he does is a real lesson, I think. And as a result, you can go back and look at his history. You can go back and see interviews. You can go back and see performances. All of that stuff is there. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think it's. I think it. Look, you know, we're in a different. We're in a different media media content ecosystem now. Yeah. There are different ways to build your brand. Different ways to look to audiences. Some people choose to go live. Uh, some people don't. Uh, some people do radio interviews. Some don't. It will. You know, everyone needs to choose their own. If you're a manager or an artist, you choose your own media mix. And especially around a particular release, but yeah, engagement is really key. And hearing hearing a voice off away from the record, uh, away from something that feels stage managed, is really important. Well, we're in the, that little bit of that pocket of reflection. When you um, look back on when you were editing uh, Up and Our Beat, was there any lessons that you were learning at that time that came into effect when you were? Um, uh, at the BBC, um, and in 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 looking at content that was coming out, how to was there any warning signs that there wasn't enough content producing? Was there any um, symptoms of what the, you know when your future forecasting of how things were going to be? Was there was there anything that you took from that? Um, no, I mean, I mean that was an analog time, right? So we, that was a magazine. That was literally it wasn't even online. Yeah, yeah. This is like pre. This sounds mad, but it's like pre-website days. It was a physical magazine <laughs> that you would have in records in record stores. Yeah, uh, you went to Roma on Saha Road. You you would find this magazine in other places and other places. I remember it. Yeah, I, I no. I mean, I I think for me, just the lesson was be be UK wide. If you, in terms of, this is in terms of the Asian music scene, you know, make sure you you connect with the whole of the UK and reflect it, reflect the scenes in the different different pockets um because in this in this day and age you know people don't people can see something if it's insincere if it's inauthentic if it's contrived and if you're trying to pump up an artist who it's just about media hype people are going to see through that even when it was paid you know let, letters printed on a piece of paper authenticity is everything um and you can't just hype something or pump something that's not there to be that's not real or doesn't have any um any real essence to it or integrity so yeah, whatever you whatever you had to do had to be rooted in in Southall, in Ilford, in Forest Gate, in Wolverhampton and elsewhere. You know, that for me stands true today as as it did back then. It's got to be real. And um people appreciate and maybe the questioning as well, that we did real interviews. You know, we yes, we recorded audio versions, but we we printed pretty much the entire entire transcripts of those interviews and people were quite free. But back then was different, you know. It was a the scene was was very new and very fresh, and even being interviewed felt like um, an innovation, really. You know, I, we weren't the first to interview people. You know, there were there were shows, mm. you know, Arch Carl in, Dar in Derby. You need to mention those guys and, and other people. You know, who were uh, uh, Amit Sidhu. You know, lots of people who were great at interviewing. And I'm going to miss someone out and um, insult. Yeah. Someone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, you can't remember everyone off the top of your head, but um, no one listens to this anyway, so don't worry about it. <laughs> so many amazing people, right? And uh, but, but no, just keep it be authentic. You um, I, I want to kind of uh, move move us along now to from when you to a kind of Punjabi hit squad. Why is Punjabi hits? Why was Punjabi hit squad 
so successful and what's the reason for their longevity i think i think you got to look at the origins of punjabi hit squad right so punjabi hit squad was the originally four members um i mentioned asian dj culture earlier so it was a coming together of me with a crew if you like so we were yeah we were family in a way you know because we, we worked together for since like 1993 so by that point you're getting to you're about seven seven eight years of knowing each other and connection uh, rav is the youngest of the crew so rav um was part of the asian dj culture alongside alongside d and alongside ammo and this is getting to about by the time you're getting to 99 2000 um actually earlier than that 98 they started to move into music music production but adc were always um so they played alongside us at limelight they were resident djs bombay jungle and you talk about people you connect with at a very early stage always connected with them why because they they saw music in a similar in a different way but a similar way to how we did you know this that was this generation they would mix up uh biggie biggie smalls instrumental with that track or you know they had their classic d would be mc and over the over the beat um some classic you know classic lines that people would remember from those days we always connected and founder of asian dj culture uh raj kalyan um who was a brother to all of us he passed away um and it you know that still is a is a real yeah you know milestone and uh and a moment in everyone's in everyone who knew him everyone's lives it was around that time and that uh, he was recording the first album uh, with asian dj culture so a track called um punjab Varga, uh in the shinda he passed away out there uh, in punjab and um that was a that was a period of time that was that was difficult you know because everyone knew raj everyone was connected to the crew everyone involved in that club it was a real shock to everybody um I can't remember the timeline, but probably two or three years later, in that period, ADC, they did. They they recharged because they did it for Raj. You know, they kept going. That legacy was really important. And Life After Death was mm. debut album was released. And they they held that torch because Raj's dream was always to to get things to that stage and release albums and push on and push on and push on and push on. Um and that has been a real driving force for Dean Rath throughout these years. You know, that that is never, that is always in everyone's minds. Um, that Raj is is seeing what's happening, actually, and um celebrating from the side from you know from above, you know, that he is, he is the one who's there. But aside from that, on a musical level, but on a on a we got together and we I can't remember who it was, I think it made him anyway we we both met up we both connected i met d and rav so we should we should work on a project together um back then it was a dj project and a musical project i think i just i had toyed with release some releases i was managing a band for a period of time the release never quite came out mm. uh, i was running clubs i was still doing i was in radio at the time so i was doing punjab radio so i had a had a platform there and I was doing Westside Radio as well by that time. So I had a radio profile and a club. I was a club promoter and I was in the music and they they were active. They were out there all the time. And, you know, we were local. We, we all knew each other. 
So we got together. Um, we formed Punjabi Hit Squad as a crew. We produced the first album. Came out by a small label called India Sound. Uh, there used to be a website called CD Guru. I used to work at CD Guru. That was my job. So we released the album through through that company. Um, had a number of tracks on there at the time that really cut through um, because we were using beats in a different way. So it felt like that really set the stamp. And then I used to promote a club in Leicester Square uh, called Hot and Spicy, the Capital Club. And um, we had a call, actually. I think, I think it might have gone through to D. Um, and it was from One Extra. And it wasn't called One Extra at the time. It was Network X. And it was a guy called Rob Littlejohn. And said, I'm calling from the BBC. We're launching a new station. We're looking for a show. Uh, we found your number on a flyer. Um, and we're looking for some DJs for a new uh, Desi show, Asian show. Would you like to come in and... Um, and pilot and i think we did that next day we went into that pilot and i think it was me yeah it was three of us it was me d and rav and um i'd done radio before so I, I felt pretty confident and so did the guys as well they hadn't done radio before but look everyone had been in new positions and everyone knew how to front it and everyone knew how to have a vibe anyway musically around what they were doing so they took to it really quickly but D was, uh, Rab at the time was mostly DJing, and I think it was me and D on the mic. We walked in, and the producer was a guy called Benji Benstead, who's, who's super well-known now, if anyone's really into their music, as Benji B. Uh, Benji B is one of the foremost, you know, he was he was with Virgil Abloh, he was, you know, he is, he is a top-tier global DJ producer uh, in terms of what he does. Benji B is producing us, and there's a guy called Rob Littlejohn. Uh, until recently, he was producing... Fire in the booth for for Charlie on Apple Music. Dropping names, dropping names. <laughs> this is about two thousand and two, I think. It was a few months before One Extra launched, and we were just on the we were just in the car on the way home, about an hour and a half after the uh, after the pilot, and it was just cool. We're coming down to Target roundabout on the A forty, coming into Southall, and it's just like, yeah, we'd like to take you on. So it happened that quickly. And then we came in and we joined, um, yeah, joined One Extra from that point, um, straight from launch. And suddenly we're along, and that was our big jump because we had always connected with the, with the black music scene. Um, but suddenly we're in a room alongside, we were really in it and we really had a chance to make an imprint of our sound and our outlook and our perspective and take uh, Asian rappers into that space and, because it was different from Radio 1. Yeah, yeah. Actually, at the time, Bobby and Aha were on Radio 1, by the way. So these two things happened around the same time. Bobby is someone I'd worked with on Up and a, Up and a Beat magazine, actually. We worked together. But Bobby's from Hounslow as well. So we knew each other. And Bobby and Nahal launched on Radio 1. I think one actually launched first. Um, but it was around the same time, within months. 2003, I think it was when... It was around, around that time. Mm -hmm. So that was a big, a big jump. So from a Punjabi hit squad, things moved really quickly around that time. We'd released our album, we'd grown our brand, started to grow it around the UK, um, and I, you know, I'd, I'd say it now, you know, so much respect for all the crews that are coming around that time. I've always, I'm about the art, I'm about passion, but I'm also competitive. Right? I've always been competitive. I, I not to the extent I won't support anybody because if somebody 
is great at what they do. I will support you, even if it's kind of, it might, you know, impact on me. I'd still do it. I, mm. I would champion you. But back then, yeah, we were like, we're from London. RDB's Leeds, Glasgow, Tiger Star. We couldn't see anything coming out of London at that time that was a crew or a sound or a sound that was really going to, on a, on a UK level, compete. And I loved what RDB were doing and Untouchables were doing. And I loved what Tiger Star were doing. Um, and Mets and Tricks were coming through around that time as well. Manchester, Surinder Ratton, yeah. you know, always is, is a brother. And, um, you know, we've worked really closely with Surinder over the years. And Surinder with a lick, that was influential. So we wanted our own thing coming out. And that was the thing. It was almost like, you know, us in London coming together saying, we need to we need to rep London, you know, and rep what we do. And the guy still reps Southall. Um, yeah, and just, just uh, I've meandered. But yeah, that Def Jam moment happened when we were at One Extra. We got signed to Def Jam around that time. Um, then the second album, um, High High and everything else. But that consistency for D and Rav, yeah, I mentioned a few a few threads there. You know, one is that legacy of the background, the heritage, um, the role that Raj always played, and that template that he set being being fulfilled time and time again. And it's never done. You know what I mean? There will be, you know, relentlessly in 20 years' time, there will be something happening musically, I've no doubt. And then it's just the love for the culture and music and how you continually Pajabi Hitsquad hasn't stood still. You know, it's kept it's kept going, different iterations. You're now seeing a new iteration off the back of the boiler room and everything else. Yeah, you know, there's, yeah, yeah. there's another period. So there's always new life like musically and I think that's that ability to uh you keep the same name you're the same people but to redefine yourself like really subtly time and time again without changing the core of what you do is important 100% I said it to Rav I was like I don't know whether the annoyance was coming from because of age but like you like were doing kind of boiler room stuff back in those days anyway and then now it's kind of like rehashed rebranded and it's a second wind yeah I mean yeah, it was back then. It was, it really was. Right? You're <laughs> it right. really was a boiler room, no air con. <laughs> back then, it's crazy because you're, you're thinking about clubs where those clubs, yeah, I mean, capacity. I'm sure now they keep the capacity mostly. Back then, you, you'd have clubs that were just, just letting people in pretty much. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. Is he breathing? Right, yeah, people yeah. smoking around you as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People smoking in clubs. Back burns. I, I remember once. smoke. You know, it's it was a heady atmosphere in a way that you you probably don't get now and some of those raves and you would call them raves because they, they were like raves right they weren't tame places they were epic you know there were thousands of people there's scenes that you don't really see now that you would turn up at Bagley's warehouse and you've got jungle drum and bass room you've got hip-hop room you've got the bungalow room and then you've got like 30 coaches coming down from all over the UK right? and you have promoters are well known you know smudge Jazz, Big Bubba, Harry, New Tech. Uh, yeah, there's there so many, so many people. And you would, the network was huge. Like you would have, where's the coach from, from Aston? Uh, three coaches. Where's the coach from De Montfort? Oh, it's that, you know, four, they're bringing four coaches. Parking. The, <laughs> park everywhere. There'll be coaches leaving from South of Broadway. There'll be coaches, you know, there'll be new bar coaches, you know. <laughs> you are coming that honestly this is like a history lesson everyone make sure you're taking notes um 
they'll be all over. And that and you, you probably, unless I'm miss, unless I'm completely missing something, I don't think you see that anymore. That's yeah, the way, exactly. way that came together. Yeah, so I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think that kind of those kind of super gigs exist anymore in, in that way. From kind of, I think it's just atmosphere as well, differently. Um, What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I, I think, interestingly, I was reading an article of how the, the the club scene, and I think only a few years ago, there was like 1,500 nightclubs that were in the, in the UK at this point. It's gone down to like something like 700. And when they when they looked at it, they were looking at after COVID, they were looking at it was when the um you know the all-night drinking licenses started to come out, that really affected the attendances of where everybody was converging into those one places, because those would be one of the rare places that you can get it. So you'd have your pre-drink or in a pub, then go straight down. Now you've got so many bars options open different late nights that those clubs are empty. And uh, they're not making no, it. It's true. It's true. It's true. I mean, we would all, you know, you would when you were young, you would have, you would have a bottle, you know, yeah, you would drink before you went into a club, you know, mostly. But you, um, yeah, things felt more illicit back then and felt um, it was a different atmosphere. But you're right. Yeah. Boiler room sets, like the wag felt like a boiler room set at its hypest. And that was a small club, but it was so intense. People around you, it felt like a boiler room set. Mm-hmm. And that was repeated over and over again. So those, so look, Dean and Rav, They've done boot camp like a million times over, you know, for that moment. And and that's the first, and not just for Rav, but for everyone else who's in that scene. There's a really, you know, at the moment, I think we're seeing, yeah, a really, a really exciting kind of range of of Asian music forms and scenes coming together right now. Um, and I've talked a lot about the Punjabi music scene just because I, I was from Hamburg. Yeah, I'm gonna go into one extra bit now. <laughs> yeah. but, but even like in the I always definitely, you know, always supported like even like young Bangladeshi kids and sound systems that were coming out of East London. That that scene always related to us and what we were doing. And um that Nasha, you know, Nasha sound system and you know, there was a there was a scene that was emerging over that side that was hugely influential as well. So we, State of Bengal, uh, when I was at the BBC and we were we had a we created some uh, blue plaques to commemorate music artists. We commemorated some some of the uh key artists that came out that came out of east london like you know um out of joy bungla and um sam zaman state of Bengal. so yeah we were never kind of in this punjabi bubble as well mm. we, we connected with young young Bengali kids in you know coming out of Whitechapel or brady street or, or elsewhere we connected with other kids that were coming out of walthamstow you know and that's what was great around that time that you you had that interconnection between you um that you celebrated so, and it was about Punjabi culture as well, beyond beyond um, beyond boundaries. So you would, yeah, you would connect with like an Arif Lahar, or you would a Reshma vocal, or yeah, like Pakistani Punjabi vocalists, or or from the broader region. You know, that was always a key thing for us. So you know, you 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 eventually became the head of what one extra. How was that? How was that journey from when you've done your first your first part? I know there's Drake on the way as well. Um, and then you've got, and then making the decision that you know, can't be, you can't dedicate your time to Hit Squad and making that difficult decision as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw it. So before that came Asian Network. And um, 
so 2006, 2005, 2006, I, I was in Punjabi Hit Squad. I started doing my own show called Breakdown on, on Asian Network on Sundays. So mm. I was doing a, a Bhangra show, like a straight old school Bhangra show. Um, Ray C used to present the show before. Um, I turned it a little bit more, and Ray, always someone I respected, um, made Breakdown a little bit more of a... Just, yeah. just on that bit. You know, when you enter the Asian network there, there was a big change of the guard that I felt. A lot of the old school kind of presenters were kind of, it almost left as a unit, really. And then there was this new wave. And I kind of class it in my head as a golden era, really, where, you know, you introducing that harps and introducing Tommy Sandus, all these other, all these people coming in. And I, I felt that it's, even now, I don't think it's got that, it's never reached that height again. What was the... What was the challenges that you 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 faced? Did you experience any discrimination, racism, or anything like that? Just as you, I'm not saying just in the BBC. I'm just saying outside of it, in in terms of the whole scene as well. At the same time, because you're hmm. moving and you're shifting the needle in a lot of uncomfortable places. Yeah, I mean, me. Um, so it was an era before Tommy. Really, it was that 2006, 2006 era was definitely a change for the Asian Network, um, in a number of ways. Um, and Asian Network had grown over the years, right? From being a 90s, 90s local radio, uh, Asian music community opt-outs into something that was a tangible network. I think around two, same time as One Extra, 2002, 2003. Sonny Dio, um, amazing broadcaster, and lots of other people as well as part of that I'm mix. I'm trying to get her on. She's impossible to get to. Uh, <laughs> I love I haven't spoken to her for, for years, but a lot of love. Gug and Gariwal and Gug and still on there. Uh, Ray Khan and others and um, I came in 2006 I suppose as part of a mandate in a way to to refresh the station right because things have changed in that five or six year period Bobby Nahal one extra Punjabi hit squad audiences are changing young audiences wanted and there's a huge young audience you know coming out if you look demographically and I would always look at the data and then kind of fill my gut as well because you can't just make decisions based on yeah, data graphics but I would look at that and I would say, okay, so look, you've got massive growth in this community. You've got, you know, there's there's something we're going to miss here if we do not adapt to meet the needs of a, of a young, changing population. And don't forget, a lot of people forget this, uh, unless the chart has changed, and I haven't seen it, the, the license, the the core age range for, for Asian Network is youth. You know, it's an 18 to, at its core, used to be 18 to 30, might be 18 to 25 now has to be first and foremost about reaching young audiences um but there was so much responsibility placed on the asian network to reach every generation um and in the, the meantime the industry had changed you know there were there were far more community asian radio stations than there there were before and each of them was served and also there was more community specific stations if you're talking about a car shred, you know, talking about Suksoga radio, talking about you know, you know, uh, so many, so many radio XL, also, yeah, oh, Sabras, you know, there were lots out there, and um, because of that, Asian Network's role had to change, it needed to sort of pull itself a little bit, I think, hold itself slightly differently. Um, and as always, when you make a range of decisions, you make, you make some that you stand by, you make some that you think, mm, maybe we push too hard at that, that particular moment. But one sensitive thing that we did is we we did we started playing more uh, non-Asian music alongside Asian music in the mix because 
we felt that's what audiences, young audiences definitely wanted. And they, they definitely did, but we needed to get the balance right. But I brought in DJs, for example, who, who championed Asian hip hop. We launched Bobby, uh, Bobby's show on, Bobby Friction's show on Asian Network. Um, before that, Asian Network sounded a bit more like a news journalistic station and news and journalism is still really important to what it, what it does and what it is. Um, and it should be distinctive in that, in that respect. But it's um yeah it went through a change and and we did I face any pushback? Yeah, I mean without a doubt I'm always open to challenge. You know there's there's no doubt. Um, I had support. I had as many supporters as probably detractors, and that's cool. I should have I should have people challenging me. I was a I was a you know a white kid running the BBC Asian Network, right? I should be challenged all day every day, and um. But I was also, I wasn't the head for a period of time. So I was in charge of music, head of music for a period of time. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I also had a lot of trust because I hadn't just popped up out of nowhere. I wasn't just a BBC bureaucrat who suddenly was given a job. You know, I'd, I'd been on air. I'd been on One Extra. I'd been on uh, Asian Network as a voice for a Bhangra show. So I, I knew a lot of people. I knew I'd come, I'd, I'd emerged from within a community, not from, I didn't come from Wiltshire or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You grew up in the roots. Sorry, I grew up. I grew up in an area where, for me, that's always been my thing. Right? I couldn't suddenly just pop into this scene. I had to come from somewhere, you know. So from whether it's my first gig in Hounslow West, if I didn't have the backing of, you know, Hounslow West, Cranford areas, people around me, mm. you're done from day one anyway. So every single time, I've had people backing me and supporting me and trusting me. I've had that trust. So I've got layers and layers and layers and layers of trust that have come in over time. So, yeah, questioning, absolutely, you know, should should have. And probably the question was probably more around where you where you draw that line, actually. Who are you for? Are you for young people? Or should you be connecting with, um, you know, a 55-year-old listener who wants to hear, um, yeah, wants to hear poetry or something? I mean, it would because Asian was pretty diverse around that time. You know, you would have, you know, Shia Roshairi sort of type shows and you would have, um, yeah, old old school programs. And we were suddenly a lot more about the new. So the playlist shifted. Um, the playlist shifted slightly more UK as well. Yeah. And, um, yeah, healthy debate. I, you know, I, I would say always a debate around that stuff is is there. And then it then it continued to change, right? So then it then it then it grew. You, got you've got have you you've obviously left what hit squad by then now, haven't you? Or are you still I, left, I had to make a decision. There was an overlap for about a year where I presented, I continued to present on one extra. I was part of Punjabi Hit Squad. I then um I then made a made a decision with the guys that I had to I couldn't do one thing or the other. Um sorry, I had to do one thing or the other, I couldn't do both. And I yeah, for career career reasons really. I had to take that call. How did how did how did you take it? How did they take it? Because if you think about it, you know everything that you've said up to this point, it's always been about a collective. It's a movement, and then all of a sudden you're making a solo decision. Yeah, it was it was. Um, look, everyone everyone discussed it, right? You know, and um, at the time, but creatively, it made it made sense. It wasn't easy. Because you're suddenly pulling away, and that was a world that I loved. I'm still connected to the guys as well. The Imrev, you know, I'll come, come on to that in a second. But um, yeah, creatively, that's a change. That's a change in my in my week and everything else in terms of what I do. But 
but for family reasons, for career reasons. And I was probably always, and they had, they had their absolute strengths in what they were doing, the DJ and MC in that collective. And I, I love that world and I'm still connected to it. But in my background, like I was, I did law, right? So my, like I said, coming back from a council estate, music is never going to be, am I ever going to work at the BBC? The BBC is never going to happen for me. You know, music and media is not something I'm ever going to be in. So I was pushed from an early age to to be the first to go to university in my family. To went to, went to Queen Mary in Westfield in um, my Lend East London. I studied history, then I did law. I went to law school. I paid for myself to go through law school. I did post grad, and suddenly I moved out of that. I pivoted out of that. I left law in the city to go into music full time. Um, I used to run a it was a startup called Yara, Yara.com. So I was the content director of that. I was one of the one of the founders of it. And, and anyone who knows that time will know about Yara. Um, so I left law for that. It was almost like a, yeah, an early, an early Asian music blog that had music downloads as part of it. Yeah. So I'd made a tough decision already for my career to move from something I loved and I'd I'd invested money into, you know, my career to go into music and media full time. So, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't make those, take those decisions lightly. You know, I would, it was quite calculated in a way that this is the right thing at the right time for me to, to move. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I think the thing in my head was whether it would jeopardize radio for Punjabi Hit Squad. Um, and that would have been in Dean Rab's mind, I'm sure. I'm not, you know, speaking on their behalf, but it didn't because, because they've got their strengths and, and Rav was suddenly much more present on the mic as well as, as a radio presenter uh, and everyone grew and obviously Punjabi Hit Squad has flourished, right? So, you know, they've always, you know, yeah, I, I contributed to uh, to the music and records and um, things like Hi Hi, for example, um, kind of, you know, played a, played a, a key role in that time, but they got more than enough and they proved they got more than enough to keep Yeah, keep yeah they ain't struggled. They've done well. <laughs> they're never going to struggle do you know what i mean so they <laughs> they've been absolutely fine and uh and it's all been you know it's been it's been cool and we work together so i brought in um and that you know i brought punjabi hit squad into asian network as well you know so some years after because no one does what they do in the way that they do you know it's uh, they've got a very unique sound in um and i you know and i even though they were, they were my former crew I, I take decisions black and white on what best for the platform. Yeah. Um, not because I used to work with them, but because they are Punjabi Hit Squad. That's, you know, the essence of what they do is is pretty much incomparable to anyone else's out there. And they brought, they brought something different to the station. Do you look back on your time at the Asian Network and, and, and in, in terms of, was there any regrets that you had? Um regrets i'm trying to think you know you know probably no regrets no regrets actually i think we grew we grew the station so we made tough decisions remember remember asian network was going to be closed right so there was a period of time so you talked about the tommy era so that was all that was around that time but the tommy you almost had like three three eras in my asian network career you sort of had the first era which is Bobby, Bobby coming in, uh, lots of changes, DJ Caper, um, other people on the schedule, Adil Red, 
day it was on on drive on breakfast and then drive it was that time mc ra kind of era and then yeah. you had the, uh then you had the potential closure of the station uh era uh which is when the bbc was making cuts across across radio six music and the asian network were earmarked for closure right and and true yeah true his numbers had got quite low for Asian Network for a period of time. Um, but there was a real rallying around. Uh, and I remember a lot of artists saying, look, this, this yeah, station... Like, the petitions, there were loads of petitions going out. For UK music, you know, for UK Asian music, for PRS, for all of these reasons, for sustaining the scene, there has to be. And, you know, remember, in our mandate, we have to play a certain percentage of UK music. No, I don't think any other station has that. People do it voluntarily. But it's mandated that we must play UK music and support, and um, that galvanised a lot of people around the station, you know, to come together. And it was tough; it was a really tough thing for everyone involved. So I, I inherited. I then became head of the station, but I inherited a station that had half the budget, uh, half half the people working for it. So we had to really work hard. It was a really traumatic period for everyone who worked at the station around that time, for people who were leaving. Um, and also people who were staying because suddenly there's half of you in the in the room than there were, were before so we had to find new ways of doing things um we had to look look at the schedule again we had to really refocus on what the agent network was about uh we had to we had to level up in some places and by leveling up um not in a, not in, not that we were doing things in a way that was below level but i mean in terms of working more closely with radio one for example that sharing resources like we did not have the expertise in live events and live music that radio one had so we need radio we need the backing of radio one we need the backing of one extra we're not asian network was seen as separate yeah. uh from the rest of the networks and shouldn't be moving forward so it was suddenly brought under the into the fold a lot more um so asian network live for example what came about from the Radio One production team, really, the Radio One Asian Network One Extra live events team produced Asian Network Live, and they produced it in the same way as they would uh, Radio One Big Weekend or One Extra One Extra Live. So that's what I mean by leveling up. We were able to suddenly grow a lot more, um, push push outwards, be more confident, work with the rest of the BBC, not be an outlier. We also grew into into London a bit more. So always. You know, I would say the the original home of the Asian network definitely Midlands, and is now returning to the Midlands. But Pebble Mill, uh, yeah, Leicester, the mailbox, always that history was really important. But we also needed to connect a little bit more in London, and we saw the station grow to its to record audiences around that time. So I think we we're about seven hundred thousand um, for a period of time, and then you had the Tommy era. So Tommy was part of that time. Harps was part of that time. Um, how difficult was it for you then to be moved to like you for you for choosing to go into the one extra scene then was it like did you just feel like you came, it came to a natural evolution and that you like you've done this bit now you needed a new challenge or were you asked to come over and um and do what because you've 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 done wonders in in figures you've you've done double the performance and half the budget half the staff it feels like in public sector this is the new philosophy that everything's happening austerity's kicking in recessions kicking in all these things are going on did it were you what was the attraction to go over then at that point yeah i mean i've been i've been pushing um to i'd asked the question about um whether one extra if one extra was an opportunity at some point 
And I had, I'd always had, even when I was at Asian Network, I had, I had thoughts and ambitions for One Extra about how it could grow. Uh, what I thought about the station, DJ-wise, what's what was happening out there in the culture that could could come into it. And I felt, and One Extra was always, that was my first entry point into the BBC. So I was always, it always felt like home and family. And whenever I would pass through, yeah, I, I knew people on the station. And um, when we moved into being firmly under Radio 1, that became an opportunity that I took on for about, so for about a three-year period, I was in charge of both stations, uh, Asian Network and One Extra at the same time. Uh, talk about pressure yeah you know two radio stations at one at one moment and i yeah it felt it felt very natural really because a i knew a lot of the djs on the station and i'd been a dj alongside them for a period of time um but they'd also seen me become a manager become senior management around that time um so i was probably able to be um just as it was an asian network where i was a dj first you know, when I'm standing up in meetings, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm sharing messages that I need to share uh, uh, about, you know, corporate messages and everything else, but also on isn't a creative... That unique, isn't that a unique place, like, where you could feel... Because there's no other peers there that could understand the pressures that you're going in. You're one of the lads, but you might not be because they're, like, worried, oh, we can't say what we... You know, there's, there's this, that. Did it... Was it how difficult did that become for you? Because even though it's a natural home, but it was a home because where you had people collectively, you, know, you had people with you because you were on the same kind of peer. Now you're in this weird space where you you've got to you also want to socialize with these guys and understand that you're still for the music, but then you you've obviously got to make corporate and head decisions as well. Yeah, it was a. Um, I know, strangely, I took I took to it. I I felt okay with that. And I, I felt okay, okay to sort of do it and front it in that way. So I think it was, um, yeah, I think I think people, I always, I was never corporate. That's the thing. I was never corporate in that sense. Mm. And of course, I would stand up and present something for, for an hour, you know, when we had to and talk through things. But I probably did it in a way that felt felt like I, I understood and, and knew what a DJ goes through and how a broadcaster grows from there to there. Um, and, I, you know, I didn't see DJs as one group. You know, I sort of... I always, I've always been a believer in specialist, uh, specialist as a, as a really important way into a, to a platform and a station. So I would, and maybe that's different. Actually, I think a lot, a lot of leaders um, in media platforms, maybe in the BBC too, are much more daytime first. And daytime is the one that brings in the audience, most audience, don't get me wrong. But I, I managed to ride both sides a little bit because that was my natural being, really. I cared about both sides. And I, um, yeah, because of that, I was able to sit down with a jam supernova. You know, jams is amazing and, and talk about potential six music activity or, or how we can move or Kenny All-Star and bring in, bring in talent, right? Yeah. So I was able to bring in a lot of the new wave of, of presenters and uh, connect with people differently. So people like Kenny, when they came in and Tiffany Calver. So when Charlie... Um, Charlie left to go to Apple. Where do you go next? Um, You're also dealing with video content as well. So radio before that medium was obviously just being learned. And now people are accessing radio and TV at the same time. You can watch your TV, your, your, the presenting as well. Did that bring extra challenges? Because I always remember seeing talk sport at the time where you're getting video content and, you, and you're listening to them at the same time. 
Yeah, I mean, that happened on Asian Network before as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Visual, visual was already there. But on one extra, you had some you had some incredible formats. Um, Power in the Booth was obviously a, a, a real cool. signature format. Uh, and we needed to create more visual formats because so visual media media had changed. YouTube was was super important by that point. It wasn't when I was on Asian Network way back or, or one extra back then. So we were creating visual formats that also work for radio um, and the other way around, audio formats that really also work visually. Um, so there was a lot of investment and a lot of time in that. But I also saw a moment in time when in the in the UK black music scene there was a you know there was a renaissance right yeah you've had you know, way back soul to soul loose ends you know there's been different chapters in UK black music history but suddenly the emergence of Afrobeats the emergence of of UK rap of drill of um, funky you know new new myriad forms of, of funky house coming through all those things have started to move and coalesce and you suddenly had if I looked out I looked at the talent pool talent pool was vast in terms of presenters that could be out there yeah um it's one thing i always feel about the asians you know the asian scene actually if you look at represent and look at nts and look at balami and look at all these different stations actually there's there's so much asian talent coming through those platforms but also if i look at asian radio stations you know there's there's young asian talent coming through mm -hmm. but i was able to look out and see yeah i mean uh, you know people who were who were radio who were ready to be on air I think my thing was always to challenge people who I didn't want people who were super polished for radio. Uh, I, that was, that's never been my thing. If you're too polished for, for one extra, it's probably not the right station. It's raw. It needs to be, you need that rawness. You need some rawness. You can definitely grow into the role. Um, yes. You need the ability to, to tell stories and articulate your music, your musical background and you know the DNA of the music you're playing and you need authenticity and credibility but it starts there and the rest can come and we did that and if you take um you know some of those some of those particular presenters kenny was definitely one bringing kenny all-star in for the uk rap show uh bringing tiffany in um proof from there uh working with dj target bringing him onto tv with the rap game um with bbc3 that i was working with uh part of the commissioning for you're helping people in their careers um i mean the talent is there you know there's no doubt but you're 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 in, you have an ability to help shape um the pathway for people to to succeed and um that time in one extra i probably i tactically did it by introducing a new a new um residency slot so i had four people on residency so i had like big zoo come in i had uh, nadia j come in i had snoochie shy come in um, Jeremiah Asiyama, um, and slowly but surely managed to find regular slots. You almost have a bit of a holding pattern of, uh, of slots where you want to start to yeah. grow presents inside the BBC. And Nadia was definitely, you know, you know, as breakfast on one extra was definitely one of those people brought Nadia in, um, and slowly but surely started to build that picture and mold the station in the way that I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be molded. I also brought back that balance of old school and new school is really important for me. So I inherited a station that's got Trevor Nelson on already um, and Rodigan. So on Sundays became more old school, just like it was an Asian network, a little yeah. bit more. And um, I brought back Rampage and Heartless crew as well on Sundays. So you have, you know, the legends yeah, in, in each lane really yeah. coming together. But also with Heartless, not just having Heartless kind of frozen in aspect from 2002, but Heartless bringing Novelist on for a, uh, for a set. Heartless bringing... 
you know, new MCs coming through at the moment together. Um, I think we also push the boundaries a little bit more um, in terms of conversation and debate on the station. So we brought in one extra talks. We could have more difficult conversations on a weekly basis. And um, language-wise, always, always a debate about where the line is, but probably push the line a little bit more around um, around content, I think, because uh, we have responsibilities to the BBC. I see, we I haven't worked for the BBC for two years. I work. I still work for the BBC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's institutionalized. <laughs> a lot. But there's editorial guidelines around, uh, you know, around harm and offence and these yeah, yeah. lyrics. And I always took that, but it's probably my my legal background. You know, I would always look at that. And um, is that not... why the Daily Mail called you evil? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that was around um, that was around UK rap and drill, and it was it was citing lyrics from particular tracks out of context that have been played on programs late night. So um, yeah, I, I think there's always that's that's ever been us, right? If you allow challenging music to be played at a certain time you might get called out by someone at some point but we always saw ourselves as as playing challenging music and i always defend the right to play uk rap and you know harder forms of uk rap and drill as well with responsibility it, it didn't mean that everything got played people never see everything that hasn't made it or that or that freestyle that couldn't be broadcast yeah. but that's that doesn't happen very often really um but we would push it as much as we as much as we could uh, and you would take out the absolute, you know, yeah, you know, leaps, leaps. <laughs> some, you know, some stuff could never be played, even for legal reasons. But that's where me and and others around me, you know, like, yeah, an amazing editor called Janine Kempadu, um, I worked with for a long time, and other people, you know, we would take those tough decisions. But they're always, always done with creative, you know, creativity at the heart, really. And I would always say this, that, you know, it's very easy to censor. It's very easy to, to edit stuff and it's very easy not to play someone. But um, you've got to you've got to weigh those decisions with responsibility for. For artists who are, who, you know, who are, who are often finding a way out and were forging careers. And when Stormzy walked out on stage and just reeled off off the, off the top of his head, like 50 plus artists, young black artists who are making a living in, in, in the UK today, who are touring up and down the country um yeah that's that's a healthy ecosystem around the music scene that deserves sustained support um and we were you know we are one extra is and, and definitely uh around that time reaffirmed its status as a place that does that really well you um you've obviously launched a lot of careers um through very you know through your time um and has there ever been a point where you've looked at someone and you can't believe you've seen how far they've gone and you know that you've um, you've played a little role in that or you've played a major role in that? Um, and have you ever been starstruck? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say Jay, actually Jay Sean, without a doubt. From the earliest day. And I think actually, I think Jay came through. I don't think we were on one extra. Were we on one extra at the time? I can't remember. It was around that time, though. But Jay, I mean, it wasn't a surprise because you could see you could see the signs. But you know, we were there in that Felton shopping centre for the dance with you video. You know, in in that video, right? So you're seeing things from that point all the way through to to ride it to to down to those pathways. And um, 
there was a period of time for Jay where it was tough actually because he because he was um, the Rishi camp then um, and then he wasn't for a period of time actually you know so around the time when Riot came through almost had to uh, it was time for a, a renewed push you know people see things in straight lines but actually no there was a lot that happened around that time and um, I, I didn't doubt that he would go on to be to be a superstar in terms of what he was doing there's no doubt but look the you know the whole little wayne birdman moment and really growing stateside yeah that was a massive curveball for everybody you know but he was he was ready for it so we you know so you saw someone from that point walking into rishi studio in perryvale west london and hearing the music to being in that video in feltham to seeing that pathway to suddenly doing shows together in canada and elsewhere you're able to see someone go from there to there um in the in the one extra world yeah i mean so many so many different artists that have over time of break grown from the beginning i mean yeah, even you know storm stormzy without a doubt you know from the earliest day earliest time uh jay huss jay huss have been active for a long period of time but suddenly uh making that leap that quantum leap with that album uh, and that support from one extra was crucial in that whole period um there's artists who i think are still are still going to make a dent who, who have been supporting like you know parcelu or, or others will come back come back around and um uh georgia smith you know georgia smith without a doubt you know a vocalist who from a from a track being played as a demo to dj target to where she is now you know it's been a, a huge yeah i mean the, the path has been incredible for her starstruck anyone have you have you ever had that um <laughs> no i mean no not not really i so, reckon there is one <laughs> you know you know what to say no not not really starstruck but no you are like i met but when you meet someone who's got such an aura like, yeah, so, yeah yeah like when you meet Shahrukh khan it's not a normal conversation do you know what i mean it's just you know it's Shark Khan, right? So yeah. <laughs> slightly different. And you're probably finding your words a little bit uh differently as you would normally, just in a just in a normal conversation. Um but others I met him once, man. He he, he I met him once. And um it was actually at the Mega Mella, believe it or not. Mm. And uh, and he's you know when they say that someone comes in, there's a presence, like he's Therefore, got a presence that you know that there's something, something different that's entered the, entered the room, like you know, positively. And I, I just worked out like he operated the room really well. You know, went round, made people who are in the background come to the forefront, uh, like have a conversation. And I just thought there was a, such a art and skill by that. And I remember telling telling this story when I was at university. This is a side bit. And one of my, I did a politics degree, and one of the lads there. He ended up being a, he ended up doing a paint set painter, and um, he, he was doing Harry Potter and stuff like that. And uh, he messaged, he rang me. He goes, oh, he goes, he goes, Range, because he knew me as Range. He goes, oh, Range, do you know uh, this guy called Shah Rukh Khan? I was like, yeah, I was like this guy's is massive. He goes, all right, just wait there. And um, he basically got a picture and he wrote two Ranjit from Shah Rukh Khan, and it was there. And I've got I've got this little I've got this little poster right there, but. Uh, for him to take time out to do yeah. little things that I just thought 
you know, this is before kind of Instagrams and all these. Like, and I thought, you know, fair play to the bloke. Fair play. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, yeah, I think he's always come across that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, he's got, you know, yeah, I think he and those people, you know, if you meet like a butchin or something, you know, they're just different, right? So, yeah. so um, but, you know, he, um, anyone else? No, I mean, no, not really. It's, I know it sounds, not not because <laughs> I see level it's just i partly when you're when you're around it all the time you just yeah, it's, yeah. it's not just work clearly it's not just work but you yeah you're just in a different in a different space so yeah. that those things happen you know we'd be in a not just not even in the just the uk black music space or, or bungara space like you'd be you'd have a you know, kings of leon or something but you know doing a live lounge right next to your office or those things were happening all the time so that became very yeah, very normal. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to bring, uh, Mark, I, I know I've had you for a long time. I'm just going to kind of bring you down to the last sort of few bits, if that's all right. Um, in terms of your 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 viewpoints on the on young talent now, you've kind of, you've gone into it a little bit, but like, what's your view on young talent and the music industry as a, as a whole at, the, at this stage? And you can go into whatever kind of, cultural blends or flavors that you're into uh young artists in the music industry okay you don't need to be signed to a record label anymore you know there, there are different ways to grow your brand and get uh, and get your music known and get it out there um i would encourage and this this is an asian uh, asian music specific thing i would say um i'm co-managing an artist at the moment called Veros, for example young let me let me use him as, a, as an example so you know, young uh, from West London, Punjabi background, uh, R and B artist, and um, super talented in what he does. Mate, I've actually uh, seen his stuff. Uh, network with him, and he's brilliant. He's gonna blow. Oh, thank you. Uh, he, I mean, he's worked. We did one thing, and I, I would say it is one reflection on the Asian scene. Sometimes this is not a generalization across everybody. It, it sounds like I am. But I'm not, you know, there are many examples where this hasn't been the case. But uh, he's been in boot camp for probably two years, vocal training weekly, week in, week out, vocal training all the time in studios, you know, 40, 50 tracks produced, most of which won't ever be released, but has really been disciplined about what he does. Um, and I think that's that's super important. And I, I'd like to see there's a temptation and me and I would have actually in a different time I would have I would have released five records by and by now mm -hmm. because you do you know you know when you're in the bubble and you can you're thinking I can do you know I think I can get in my ministry stage you know next week or elsewhere there's a temptation just to push push music out and um don't do that you know take your time on it take your time on it um harness you know hone your art on your craft this is more about, by the way, this is for this particular genre, I would say. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, really invest and um, take on a broad range of influences, you know, vocally think about that, uh, you know, that records that are outside your sphere, you know, that vocally aren't inside your lane and learn from them. I think that's important. Um, a, a broader point beyond that is definitely around... Um, Go beyond, go beyond, you know, go beyond those boundaries and, and learn from other genres, you know, really think about where you want to get to, but, but really take in influences from, uh, from different spaces and, ex and expand. And 
I think that's changed a lot over the years. I think things are now for young, I'm talking here about inside the Asian music industry, but I think people are now thinking a lot more broadly about how they can collaborate, how they can connect. Mm. Um, we are in a time, and you hinted about this earlier, you know, the Asian music, Asian artists should never be reliant upon the mainstream noticing noticing what uh, them and what they do. But it, but it does happen in waves, and we had that wave in the early noughties. We got signed to Def Jam, Raghav, incredible talent, by the way, um, who, I'm, who I'm working with now as well. Um, Jay got signed, Nitin Sawney, um, very, very different artists, by the way. I've just put everyone together, but just happened to be have Asianists at the core. But it was a thing around major labels noticing, and that's coming around again. Um, I think it's coming around in a different way, and Desi Trill, uh, support Shabs, and a team of what they're doing. But um, harness it, you know, harness that moment in time that's coming now where major labels are leaning into celebrating British Asianness, but also understand the global picture. Think about how you can use your experience here in the UK. And you've got a global audience, but think about the diaspora as well and how you can connect on a global level, because that connectivity in the Asian community is, is something that's pretty unique. And the ability to, to come out of come out of London or Wolverhampton or Coventry and grow a fan base pretty quickly that spans Australia, Malaysia, Kenya, uh, India, Pakistan, and elsewhere is pretty, is pretty unique and special. And that's really, that's, that's a huge way you can really start to uh, accelerate and fast track what you're doing. But isn't that the uniqueness of like, since you've left the BBC, that your consultancy work is that you're able to, utilize all the experience the the formulas that you've seen the the percentages of small marginal gains the large marginal gains in order to promote that whole culture and your artist under you yeah i mean i i think i think i felt it even when i was inside the bbc you know you see those people who've got a who've got a, a vision and a perspective to what they're doing and not just not just artists coming out of the uk by the way like divine coming out of out of Mumbai, right? So I brought uh, Divine over for the first time to the UK, and I've got to thank um, you know the breakfast team at the time for that. Who um, the team who really earmarked him as a as a talent, but we were able to be very early on that Indian rap wave, for example, and bring him over and support him and connect him with producers and artists as well in collaboration over here. So I think it's is always thinking beyond nuclear and another electronic artist coming out of India we were able to to do that and connect in a different way. And I, I think it is, I don't know about marginal gains. I, I think marginal gains is, you know, mar marginal gains is, is definitely around the craft area, I think. I think it's just that edge, that discipline. I go back to what I said earlier about the, the perfect alchemy is creativity team with discipline. You know, and if you're a producer, that means air miles in the studio you know you're spending time and you're getting it right before it leaves the studio don't spend too long on it though because because you know you end up in the trap of something never leaving the studio which can happen <laughs> to a lot of people. So you you tried you spend too long on it know when it's right and ready to push out there and, and give it to the world uh, and if you're a vocalist spend time on that craft you know really spend time on it um it could, and, and it never stops it's a you know a relentless pursuit of excellence really in terms of what you're doing but um, and then there's 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 luck, right? Luck plays a huge a huge part in this. There's good fortune, you know, if you're fortuitous to have yeah. released something at a certain time when 
when the scene and the scene and the culture is looking for something, then you've got you've got that perfect perfect storm uh, that comes together. But reading, look, I'm a, I'm someone who, even at my point in my career, I'm constantly scanning. You know what's going on. I'm someone who, even even when I'm eighty, I'm still going to be. I'm still going to want to know what's going on. Mm. Maybe I'm just you know, yeah, you know, just one of those people who who likes to always know what's going on with brands in the music space in the in the brand space. What's going on with music? What's what's hot? Who played Coachella last week? What's popping in Punjab at the moment? What's you know what's coming out of Lagos? Who's the new you know who's the rising star of Afrobeats? I've probably always thought on a on a global level around around music and how it connects and um that's me but you know every, I, I think think globally i think that's important Conaway is is looking at your um gravely gin talk to me about it. talk to me that because so we've done everything else about music but now we're into because your last answer you gave about three different cocktails you said the perfect storm <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> you now it's um Grave New Gin was a so when I left the BBC I wanted to do something that I could never do when I was at the Beeb. Um and I wanted a it'd been a long time. I had I had a business before, right? As a director of a company before joining the BBC in 2002. And in that that 18, 19 year period, I hadn't, I was fully focused on on my work at the Beeb. You know, I had to leave, you know. Certainly, you know, I had to leave Punjabi Hit Squad to to take on a role at the BBC, so I didn't do that lightly. Um, so when I left, a friend of mine contacted me, and I I like that intersection between brands and uh, music and culture and how that comes together. And there was a there was a particular brand of gin. Um, I didn't start it. That was that the founder was 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 selling, and it had already already won some awards. Um, and was out there, uh, but was wasn't particularly well known beyond a, a certain part of London. So, like, I mean, if anyone knows London, Tooting, Streatham, Clapham, Wimbledon, around that way. And I, it was organic as well. Uh, I saw an opportunity to take on this brand and see if I could grow it. Um, so we got into Soho House, uh, got into a few places. Just, <laughs> I mean, you sort of think when you take something on within six months, you're going to launch five new recipes and. It hasn't been that case. It's been getting in, steadying the ship. Yep. Boring stuff that needs to happen sometimes, like, you know, get costs down, you know, find find different ways to get to market um, more effectively, get the right marketing mix, don't spend too much money on SEO or Google ads, uh, work out distribution, import, export, all of those things, right, alongside the creative. But um, but the creative comes into it because within within about a month of taking it on, I had a call from this uh, platform called the craft gin club and the craft gin club is anyone who's into their gym will know it it's got 100 110,000 plus subscribers and they asked me this was in july july august 2022 if um i would like to uh, be their christmas um sorry 2021 would they like to be their christmas gin which is the big one christmas 2022 and um at that point i hadn't distilled anything at all um, so I had to learn pretty quickly. And um, <laughs> I, yeah, and I have, I don't just get someone to make it. Uh, I've got a couple of people in the team who can distill, but I've had to distill spirits um, and be licensed to do that. And and uh, it sounds a little bit trite, but actually it's it's a bit, it is, it is like music. It is percussive, you know, it's, 
it's the it's the sonic it's like the the alchemy <laughs> yeah i'm an i'm an alchemist right yeah. so it is the balance of of juniper with cloves and cinnamon and nutmeg with the orange and the clementine and and you do and you dial up and dial down right you're like now the drums are too too loud the vocal vocal isn't cutting through enough this add a little bit of something to that um let's do it so at the top end you know it's like top end and bottom end it's like you know how what does it leave you with afterwards you know there's so many comparisons but it is like playing the orchestra uh but it, except it's not it's not uh you know an audible uh experience it's it's still sensory though and um you know that comes into uh that comes into play so yeah we've been we've been reasonably successful we haven't really pushed out yet I'll put the links on this and we'll see how far it goes. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm downplaying it. We've, we've done some successful things. Yeah, I know you have. I know you're downplaying it because I know. <laughs> but the crouching oh. there. And I and also, look, you know, when you look out there, there are many people who are, are able to connect the world of um, spirits and, and clubland and music yeah. and everything else in between. So, so expect a lot more next year. Perfect. Mark, the final question. I've absolutely loved this. Um, this is the bandwagon. Um, so it, it's an opportunity for the guest here. Is there a bandwagon that they like to jump on, a bandwagon that like they, like they would like to jump off? Or if there's anything that they want to get off their chest, this is their space to do so. Wow. Uh, I haven't seen this section before. <laughs> bandwagon to jump on. You don't have to jump on or off. It could be or just anything off your chest. This is your space. Yeah, bandwagon to jump on. No, I, I feel like my wagon, my wagon is is pretty, pretty okay. Well, yeah. my wagon is full as well. I do not need another wagon. Yeah, 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 yeah. I make it work. Uh, anything to get off my chest. Yeah, no, I mean it's not it's not even for people view, viewing this. I think it's there's been a you know a gross underrepresentation of the British Asian experience. I think over the last 30, 40 years. And um, it's about time those stories, and they are they are now being told. But that's across everything from all creative areas, and then that needs to be um, addressed and rectified. And that's that's a call out to everybody. It's you know mostly non Asian commissioners and uh, people looking at this. You know who, who probably won't even see this podcast, but if you are, you know consider unique unique British Asian and diaspora stories you know, from across the community, do not see communities as one amorphous, you know, homogenous group, you know, understand nuance, understand difference, understand authenticity, understand relevant, uh, relevant topical stories, but also stories of history that just that deserve to be told and haven't been told. So yeah, that's probably a thread that's been with me from, from day one, but, uh, and not just British Asian stories, but just, yeah, diaspora stories that, um, that aren't out there. Mark, I hope everybody who's listened to this or watched it understand why I constantly done this guy's head in to get him on here. The the knowledge, um, I couldn't have done it any justice in the way, like from what you've done and what you've achieved. A massive thank you for sharing what you have. I really appreciate it and definitely one of the, you know, one of the key figures when looking back historically around uk punjabi uk music music your role is cemented within that and 
I, I, I really appreciate you just sharing what you have done today. Thank, thank you. I'm glad you hassled me for yeah such a long period of time. <laughs> I, haven't done, I haven't done any of these actually. So no, this is like the first interview I've done in a long, long time. So thank you. Because <laughs> there's there's not enough platforms like this wow. to share you know share these stories and um, and get out there and uh, look. You know, I know you're doing it for you know you do it for love and for for unearthing. So just like I said at the end, right? unearthing kind of history and stories and storytelling and helping to push things forward so no you know well done to you and in terms of what you're doing thanks mark i really appreciate it mate oh, no. thank you